Hello and welcome. I'm really, really thrilled um, to be here tonight to speak to you because my topic tonight is something that we all are very much aware of, and that is pain, pain in our own lives, and of course pain in the lives of our loved ones, friends and acquaintances. And one of the things I'm going to be suggesting today is that pain itself is a phantom. It is a spectre that haunts clinical encounters. Physical suffering is, of course, the chief symptom impelling people to seek medical help. Yet its subject nature, its invisibility, routinely thwart diagnostic and curative processes. The fact that pain can only be felt by the person in pain means that sufferers are regularly required to communicate their subjective sensations through language. And this creates formidable problems. Many sentient beings, infants, the comatose, the unconscious, some physically and mentally impaired people lack the ability to put their thoughts or sensations into words. And even people who possess sophisticated cognitive skills often seek silence and seclusion. Their linguistic creativity is impaired. Sufferers feel alienated even from themselves, complaining of this kind of disconnect between me and my body, particularly my body in pain. Like physicians and other carers, they too may be haunted by the invisibility of their own suffering. This, I like to suggest, is the phantom that Richard uh, René Lerichet was referring to in his classic text, The Surgery of Pain, published in 1939. He admitted to feeling intensely distressed at being powerless to understand the other person's suffering. He portrayed surgeons like himself as kind of reaching out to help their patients even, as he put it, sympathetically touching the region of pain, only to be surprised that you can feel nothing. And yet, at times, by your touch, even exciting, dreadful, recurrent spasms of pain in the patient. There was, as he lamented, simply nothing to be seen. Now, Lerichet was exceptional. He was an exceptionally empathetic surgeon. Although he lamented the invisibility of the other person's pain, he was aware that physicians could appreciate at least something of the nature of their patient's suffering by observing their facial and bodily gestures. For example, Lerichet described a consultation with a man suffering from trigeminal neuralgia, an agonizing disorder of the face, nerve disorder. He instructed physicians, look at him, look at him while you're speaking to him. At first, the patient seems to be listening to you, calm, normal, perhaps a little preoccupied. But then, of a sudden, he becomes rigid, the pain is there. His face becomes screwed up. There is depicted in it a terrible expression of pain, a grievous pain. His eyes are closed, his face is drawn, his features distorted. And immediately he lays his hand on his cheek, 
presses it against his nose, sometimes rubbing it vigorously, or, more frequently, he remains rigid in his pain, which appears to bring everything in him to a stop. Physicians, therefore, he argued, could identify this inarticulate but unmistakable facial gestures of distress, these renderings of suffering rendered pain tangible. Now, Lerichet's meditation on the nature of pain, its invisibility, yet the ability of observers to witness at least some components of its nature and intensity through visual observation, are the themes of, of my talk this evening. In recent decades, there has been a growing literature on visual representations of pain in the modern period. Historians have analysed the art of pain in newspapers, cartoons, periodicals such as Punch. Attention has been paid to the way people in pain themselves have sought to represent their suffering visually. There are also very eloquent writings on artist surgeons such as Henry Tonks, pioneer plastic surgeon during the First World War, who sketched or painted their patients. In contrast, what I want to do in this talk is actually something very, very different. I want to explore the way physicians have represented pain visually in mainstream medical texts. Mainstream medical texts. I mean, a few years ago, I published a book called The Story of Pain. In that book, I argued that the linguistic, that linguistic representations of pain within medical texts became progressively thin throughout as the 19th and 20th century progressed. During this period, I argue in this book, authors of medical books and articles gradually stripped their prose of rich metaphors and metonyms, increasingly favouring the much more austere languages of the biological sciences. 19th century physicians, in other words, who prided themselves as being men of feeling, gradually reinvented themselves as men of science, with empathetic detachment being seen as the most appropriate comportment of physicians vis-à-vis -vis their, their patients. In this talk, I want to do something different. I want to explore a similar shift that we can see in the way that pain is repre was represented visually in Anglo-American medical and surgical texts in the century from the early 19th century to the late 20th century. I'm going to be arguing that in the earlier period, visual representations of pain were welcomed because they served to bolster arguments about gestures and facial expressions. Um, that, that gestures, facial expressions are what they used to call a natural language that served to ripen the manly sensibilities of surgeons and other clinicians. Aesthetics and other technologies disrupted this aesthetics. Gestures and facial expressions were dulled as dismemberment took place on insensible bodies whose cries and movements, if indeed there were any, were regarded as simply automatic reflex reflexes. It was in the 19th century, in other words, that body and mind, pain and suffering were sheared apart and the surgeon's expertise 
concentrating on the body with its ghostly, inscrutable signs. At the outset, though, it's important to acknowledge that medical texts only rarely provided visual representations of pain. Of course, there's a proliferation of images of lesions, incrustations, diseased tissues and organs, with their, of course, implicit acknowledgement of painfulness. But explicit, explicit visual commentaries on pain as such were uncommon. Nevertheless, as we'll be seeing, where pain imagery did exist, it was significantly more common in the earlier texts. So basically, no visual um, representations of pain in the 19th century um, can fail to acknowledge the greatest surgeon illustrator of that period, Charles Bell. He published lavishly illustrated medical texts designed not only to enlighten artists about the form, the physical form of the human body, but also to instruct surgeons um, in their craft. His most famous work was Illustrations of Great Operations, which was published in 1821 and went through numerous um, editions. This book um, was notable for Bell's drawings and engravings of men whose facial expressions were contorted in obvious agony. Bell believed that, quote, when the demonstration of surgery is presented to the eye, that knowledge is most easily conveyed. There was much professional knowledge which he, the surgeon, cannot easily attain by any other means. In other words, interpreting the patient's facial expressions was more reliable than employing the senses of touch, smell and sound. It was even, he argued, more effective than listening to a patient's verbal descriptions. Being able to read facial expressions of pain were essential because Bell believed and he viewed pain as something that was important in its own right, as opposed to pain being a sign of something else, which, as we'll see shortly, was what preoccupied later physicians. As Bell put it in The Anatomy and Philosophy of Expression, 1844, pain is affirmed to be an unqualified evil, yet pain is necessary to our existence. At birth, it rouses the dormant faculties and gives us consciousness. To imagine the absence of pain is not only to imagine a new state of being, but a change in the earth and all upon it. Sensitivity to pain is destined to be the protection. It is the safeguard of the body. In other words, from this perspective, pain expressions communicated God's will. Bell's interpretation of pain and pain expressions were fundamentally shaped by his experiences on the battlefields. Many of his representations of pain were based on the time he spent tending to the wounded after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. It had been for him a very emotionally fraught experience in which, as he wrote to his friend, the politician Francis Horner, the decencies of performing surgical operations were soon neglected. 
the cries of the wounded or beseeching to be taken next, that is to be operated on next, was traumatic for him. Before long he observed his clothes were stiff with blood and his arms powerless with the exertion of using the knife. It was this horror that, Bell, that led Bell to muse upon the nature of surgical sympathy. He marvelled that it was more extraordinary still to find that his mind remained calm amidst such variety of suffering. After all, he concluded, to give these desperate patients access to your feelings was to allow yourself to be unmanned for the performance of a duty. And I think this use of the word unmanned, which comes up, by the way, time and again in these texts, is actually very important. For Bell, manliness was a subject for both surgeons and patients. He illustrated this dynamic in a sketch of an amputation. In the top left of the sketch, Bell portrayed the surgeon as this kind of manly figure who wielded his knife, as Bell put it, um, more like a sabre than a surgeon's scalpel. Bell was clear about the masculine gendering of the surgeon's sensibilities. He insisted that it was nothing more than a vulgar error to imply that the surgeon had to be diverted of the common feeling of humanity in order to do his duty. This error, he claimed, was one typically made by women. In his words, let my lady's maid still suppose that he must be a brute whose occupation soils his hands with blood. It is not supposed that she can have a very accurate notion of the difference of his service, of the service who inflicts the wounds and of he who closes it. But for a reasonable man, and most of all for one educated in surgery, it is very ridiculous to assign as a reason for him not doing his duty that his feelings prevent him. The surgeon, he went on, should not stand like a foolish maid who holds her apron betwixt her pretty eyes and the object of her horror. But manliness for Bell was also required of patience. In operation of the soldier, soldier joint to amputate the arm, Bell portrays the facial expression of a soldier undertaking a, an amputation. Only when the pain was unbearable at the dislocation of the joint would such a man with his strong manly features swoon away. Bell believed that his sketches would serve to educate surgeons in their task. Due to his deeply held religious beliefs, most famously set out in a, a book he wrote called The Hand, Its Mechanism and Vital Endowments as Invincing Design, 1833, Bell regarded facial expressions and gestures as a natural language. He was also influenced by phrenology and physiognomy, all very popular at the time in medical circles. As Sansom Davis explained in Principles of Physiognomy and Natural Language, the corporeal gestures constituting natural language are not merely the expressive vocabulary of the passions and sentiments, they are also at the same time, they also at the same time serve to accomplish 
or to insist on the fulfillment of their aims. So in other words, what he's saying here is that pain, the expression of pain, served actually a healing function to heal the sufferer. That's the first thing. And secondly, that they have an irresistible moral influence over the minds of spectators through the amazing power of sympathy. He elaborated, whenever we witness the expression of any feeling, no matter how expressed, we irresistibly experience the corresponding feeling. This is sympathy or fellow feeling and a wide and beautiful ordination it is. The source of all the finer joys and the charities of life and a necessary constitute in the character of a fully sentient being. This was also Bell's purpose in drawing these images of suffering. While the public, he argued, were viewing Waterloo in terms of enterprise and valour, Bell believed that visual representations of pain would remind people of the most shocking sights of woe, accents of entreaty, outcry from the manly breast, interrupted forcible expressions of the dying and noisome smells. In other words, there was a moral message in all of these visual representations. There was also, for all of these clinicians of this period, a, of course, a clinical message. The expression of agony, the expressions of agony, were an integral part of the healing process for three reasons. First, they prepared the fractured body for the trial ahead, the operation. They equipped the surgeon for his act of giving aid. And they primed the public for their act of sympathy. Now, Bell was, and these other ones, were undoubtedly exceptional, but other physicians during the first half of the 19th century also sought to represent suffering through facial expression and gestures in medical and surgical texts. For example, just a few examples from this, but there are, there are hundreds. In the Physiognomy of Diseases, 1849, George Coffey explicitly attempted to educate physicians in the look of pain. He considered the individuality, the individuality of each and every patient to be paramount. In his words, I consider God alone the one who kills and who makes alive, who wounds and who heals. This explains why patient, while a patient might suffer the same form of disease as another patient and be of the same sex and age, with symptoms closely similar, with the same care bestowed by the same accomplished physician, nevertheless, one might die and one live. Because of the deity's ultimate power, it was misleading to generalize from large numbers of sick people. And of course, as we'll see in a few minutes, this of course is inverted um, much later. Rather, physicians had to judge each patient on their own merits, or more appropriately, on their own face. Coffey emphasized the great importance of the study of disease through the index of the countenance. He encouraged physicians to pay attention to each and every aspect of a person's face. They should gaze into their patient's eyes with their 
with their, quote, variations, the shadows, the languor, the lethargy, the imploring look for help, the impatience, the terror, the anxiety, the havoc which the disease is making, and the stamp of which is pictured in the eye, its brows, and its lid. Then we view the brow, that wonderful appendage of expression in a human face. This too has its silent language. It may be overhanging, raised or depressed, whilst the lid exhibits its alternations of puffiness or hollowness, of smoothness or unevenness, of darkness or paleness, of sallow or brown, of white or of purple. Through a careful study of facial expressions, the physician could learn to recognize the disease of the patient before he interrogates him as to his sufferings, ailments, or the history of his illness. In other words, acute witnessing actually took precedent over patient narratives. Faced with the patient, the doctor should first run his eye over the face and get that by heart so to speak. In other words, by gazing on the face of the person in pain, the physician could not only diagnose the ailment, but also act with his heart swollen with sympathy. Now, like the majority of physicians in this period, Coffey was influenced by Lavater, the Swiss poet, Protestant, um, pastor and physiognomist. By the time Lavater died in 1801, his essay on physiognomy had been published in more than 14 cheap as well as expensive editions in English. For Lavater, both the gestural features of a person's face and those expressive movements of the face, as well as the innate features, were crucial in judging a person's essential nature. As all these physicians in this period recognized it was a theory that proved extremely useful in diagnosing illness. Corfi, for example, went so far as to quote him as advising, quote, quoting Lavater, as advising physicians that the physiognomy of the patient frequently instructs him, the physician, better than all the verbal information he can receive. And their approach was extremely common. Just to take one other example here of a surgeon who's paying close attention to facial and gestural languages of suffering. And this is Joseph Sampson Gamgee, prominent surgeon from the Queen's Hospital in Birmingham. In 1865, he published... Um, the title is History of a Successful Case of Amputation at the Hip Joint, the Limb, eight, 48 Inches in Circumference, 99 Pounds Weight, um, published in 1865. Now, although his text was intended to be read only by surgeons, it provided very detailed surgical analysis of an, in this intricate operation, the photographs that he used were regarded, he regarded as just as important, and in particular that they provided visual evidence of his patient's Christian resignation to fate before the operation, followed by his agonized face at the, during the trial of the operation, and finally, the surgical triumph in its aftermath. Secondly, though, like Corfi, like Bell and all the others, but not their successors later in the century, Gamgee paid considerable attention to the specificities of his patients' lives. 
as well as the countenance and constitutional soundness. Readers are told of this very highly um, surgical text that the, they're told the man's name, Joseph Bramwell, given extensive information about his family and working life. This specificity was really important because Gamgee, like Bell and Corfi and all these others, believed that it's dangerous to generalize. All patients are unique. He believed that there was little need to include linguistic descriptions of pain because the natural language, the natural language of facial expression and gestures were eloquent enough. Indeed, um, they could even be superior to language or to words. The final medical influence in this period that drew attention to the facial expression was that of the French neurologist um, Duchesne. In a series of experiments published as The Mechanism of Human Facial Expression, 1862, he used the adept application of electrical currents, electric, electricity, to cause an old man's facial muscles to contract in ways that would accurately mirror human emotional expressions. For him, the human, the individual's spirit, was the source of expression. And by activating the muscles, he was able to make the facial muscles contract to speak the language of the emotions. Like Bell, his experiments also had a fiercely religious purpose. There was divine purpose behind every muscle of the body, he argued. In his words, in the face... Our creator was not concerned with mechanical necessity. He was able in his wisdom, or please pardon this way of speaking, in pursuing a divine fantasy, to put any particular muscle into action, one alone or several muscles together, when he wished the characteristic signs of the emotions, even the most fleeting, to be written briefly on man's face. Once this language of facial expression was created, it sufficed for him to give all human beings the instinctive faculty of always expressing their sentiments by contracting the same muscles. This was important since it meant that facial expressions were language universal and immutable. Now, from the late 19th century onwards, however, from the mid-19th century onwards, however, surgical and other medical journals paid progressively less attention to facial expressions and gestures. Now, in part, this was due to um, processes of the professionalization of the discipline, which rendered the emotional lives of patients of less relevance to surgeons and other physicians. The introduction of diagnostic classification systems changing medical technologies rendered patients' descriptions of pain and their facial expressions of pain more peripheral to the healing process. Hospital medicine focused not on individual peculiarities, but generalizations based on large numbers of people. The growth of laboratory medicine enabled physicians to bypass patient narratives and expressions in their search for an objective 
diagnosis based on knowledges taken from microbiology, chemistry, physiology, neurology, and so on. The invention and employment of anesthetics also reduced the emotional investment of surgeons to the torturous suffering that they were inflicting on their patients. Rather than writhing in pain, their patients were now unconscious bodies capable of being manipulated in relative silence. In the words of one surgeon, writing only eight years after the, the discovery of chloroform, the shrieks of sufferers were all hushed. With a new anaesthetic, physician Walter uh, Bundell decreed in 1854 that the surgeon's nerve was now all strung. Calmly, deliberately, he could do his work among human tissue unimpeded by muscular contractions, unembarrassed by the sufferer's violent contortions, unharassed in his mind by the sensitive cries of woe, he pursued his manipulations as on a breathless, lifeless form. Bell's lamentations in illustrations of great operations of surgery about the wounded soldier who was miserably racked with pain and spasms while his arm was being excised at the joint was no longer necessary. The surgeon was not required to convince the lady's maid that he was not a brute whose occupation soils his hand, hands with blood. As surgeon David Chiefer put it bluntly in 1897, as a result of anaesthetics, the surgeon need not hurry, he need not sympathise, he need not worry, he can calmly dissect as if on a dead body. This was a world away from Bell's surgical practice and his generation. The expressive face, the contorted body, was no longer thought to provide physiological respite, was no longer a healing thing, these expressions, nor was it assumed to inspire or incite manly sympathy in the breast of the physician. As a result, the sentient body was increasingly excised from medical texts. Instead of dramatically expressive, individualized faces, textbooks simply began reproducing schematic bodies, with the pathological sight simply shaded in. On the rare occasion, very rare occasion, where the patient's face was visible, here's one example, it was expressionless. For example, in this photograph here, published in 1895 in Brain, a journal of neurology, it shows the image of a tattooed man suffering from extreme chest pain. There was, as you can see, no attempt to represent a pained facial expression. Rather, the painful parts of this patient's body were literally written on the body. You can see they're drawn in on his, on his flesh, on his skin. Given how rare it is to see a face or indeed a photograph of a person in pain in medical journals of this period, I think it's really hard to avoid speculating that this image was published primarily because of interest in his um, tattoo. In contrast to the highly expressive faces and gestures of the earlier period, Pain was increasingly represented on the surface of the body, typically conceived of in geographical terms, as in 
pain maps, or what Loichet called regions of pain. This emphasis, the emphasis placed on the localization of pain in these images is not coincidental. By the late 19th century, it was widely accepted in medical circles that the sensation of pain was caused by some bodily pathology that should be able to be localizable to a discrete, specific part of area within the inner body. This is called the specificity theory of pain, and it focused on the way pain travels. In other words, again, the geographical metaphor dominates all these discussions. The way pain travels from the skin to a pain center in the brain. It was a theory perfectly in line with geographical visualizations of pain. Neurologists might concede that they were not always able to identify the precise location, but they insisted that there was nevertheless a lesion somewhere. They just hadn't found it yet. It was a short step from such a view of pain to the idea that it was always manifested as a visible pathology located within material structures and tissues inside the patient's body. Invisible pain, in other words, could be discounted. Given this location-based understanding of pain, it's interesting to observe that visual representations of pain appeared most frequently, in fact almost exclusively, when physicians wanted to illustrate a kind of pain that was not straightforwardly related to the site of lesion. In other words, when they were referring to referred pain. Referred pain of a common clinical, well-known clinical phenomenon. Hip D disease can cause a pain in the knee. Tongue cancer can uh, feel as earache. Gallbladder disease appears as shoulder pain, etc., etc. In other words, physicians in this later period turned to images most frequently when they needed to illustrate the location of pain that was not at its correct location. In this way, referred pain was a phantom lurking where it oughtn't be, and therefore potentially misleading patients and physicians alike. And pain maps were intended to provide the key. So in other words, if a patient pointed to her knee, the pathology was likely to reside in her hip. If she pointed to her shoulder, the physician needed to check her gallbladder or heart. There was no attempt to represent either patient's outward Responses to pain, as Bell, etc., were doing with the aim of exciting, eliciting a reaction from witnesses, nor their subjective feeling of pain, which the other generation believed could be elicited or could be gauged by the extremity of facial contortions. Rather, the representations were concerned simply with the location of pain on the surface of the body. In other words, it hurts here. These images took a number of forms. Um, occasionally, they involved images of patients in classical poses. For example, Glenworth's Reeves Butler's The Diagnostic of Internal Medicine, 1901, reproduced, uh, republished many, many times. Um, referred pain was posed by the classical figure of Diana, an erotic image that contained no implication that her pain was, in fact, painful. 
More typically, the authors of these textbooks provide their readers with schematic um, images, all expressionless. Some are shown with heads, some without, some have their heads floating above um, the torso. Gender is also largely excised, unlike the relentless emphasis on masculinity in earlier representations. In these schematic um, images, over 90% are either male or of indistinguishable sex, even when the patient being discussed is a woman. This emphasis on location, as opposed to expressive displays of subjective feelings, was consolidated from the 1940s, when diagrammatic representations were put to further use um, by the introduction of pain maps, sometimes also called pain charts. The most important person here is actually the New Zealand physician Harold Palmer, who published a very famous, a very important article called Pain Charts. And basically, he would simply give his patients a piece of paper with these uh, schematic um, images on it and ask them to draw in uh, where their pain um, uh, was. But I think what's really important about this, I mean, on one hand, it's an attempt to give patients the ability to show where their pain is, but I think we really need to look at the subtitle of the article of his, the subtitle of his influential article. And the subtitle is A Description of a Technique Whereby Functional Pain May Be Diagnosed from Organic Pain. In other words, pain maps were intended to allow physicians to distinguish between pain that was a result of organic damage to tissues and pain that was due to a functional nervous disorder. This was a crucial difference for people like Palmer, since organic lesions were of considerable higher status than functional disorders, which were always accompanied by suspicions about whether they were real pain. In interpreting the patient's pain maps, physicians were taught that patients who sketched non-symmetrical regions of pain were likely to be suffering from real pain. Those who shaded in symmetrical regions of sensitivity or pain should be suspected of functional nervous disorders. Palmer even marveled over the fact that the symmetry is sometimes depicted with almost artistic fidelity, a decidedly suspicious attribute for him. Again, this is a long way from those earlier physicians who, for whom the greater the suffering, the more extreme would be their facial and gestural manifestations. In this way, pain maps echoed wider cultural um, opinions that the more elaborate, the more artistic representations of pain, the greater the likelihood of hysteria or feigning. This was summed up succinctly by George Engel, the psychiatrist who formulated the highly influential biopsychosocial model of illness. 1959, Engel advised clinicians that elaborate pain descriptions um, increased the chance that they were reflections of the degree to which the pain is entering in psychic function in a more complicated fashion, now serving purposes far beyond the simple nociceptive function. The strong normative component of these pain maps is um, very important. In the 1970s, however, we see another change taking place in these medical textbooks. 
um, they began once again to show facial expressions, although not gestures, which of course the earlier texts were particularly interested in. This was driven in part by evolutionary debates, the re-issuing um, in particular of Charles Darwin's The Expression of Emotions in many, many, um, uh, many, many different editions. His classic is also influenced by new psychological research um, claiming that facial expressions um, were, especially core emotions, were universal. And particularly important in this is Paul Ekman and his collaborators, who from the 1970s photographed and analyzed ex emotional expressions from all over the world, um, and devised this thing by which you could tell what emotion a person was feeling by looking at uh, analyzing their facial expressions. The research concluded that core expressions of pain involved brow lowering, eye closure, orbit tightening, that is, narrowing of the eyelids and raising of the cheeks, and levator contractions, that is, upper lip raising and perhaps wrinkles on the side of the nose. And there was widespread, from the 70s, adoption of such views, which reignited interest in reading pain faces. This was seen particularly important in uh, the context of infants, comatosed or unconscious patients, the physically and mentally impaired, and my favorite example, um, animals, rats. This is the rat grimace scale, so you can tell if a rat is in pain. As with pain maps, these visual representations were quickly used to adjudicate on the reality of verbal descriptions of pain. Importantly, while Bell had assumed that facial expressions of pain encouraged sympathy, these physicians did something very different. In fact, they argued the opposite. In an article entitled, this is just one example of many um, that make this point, entitled, Expressing Pain the communication and interpretation of facial pain signals, published in the journal Nonverbal Behavior, 1995, Kenneth Praction and, um, and Kenneth Craig cited research that purported to show that pain faces were counterproductive in clinical encounters. Work by a lot of other scientists um, and physicians um, continued in this line and reinforced this argument, suggesting that, quote, this is uh, from another um, uh, scientific um, paper, conscious efforts to communicate pain through guarded movements, facial expressions, or extreme ratings of pain actually upset and even enrage clinicians. They observed that, Quote, clinicians, adjudicators, insurance investigators, and family members often propose that the financial or social consequences of pain displays, rather than the experience of suffering, represent their true source. So in other words, patient um, gestures um, were about financial or social consequences. This, they argued, was why clinicians should be aware of nonverbal leakage in pained facial expressions or the display of signals that betray the underlying state. 
Just to conclude, so what I've kind of suggested here today is that pain, pain itself is this kind of phantom haunting medical textbooks. Despite the fact that pain is of intense anxiety, even terror, for most people who go and see a physician, it's remarkable how little attention was paid to it in clinical writings. Visual representations of pain are even rarer. They were, in fact, relatively more common in the 19th century, however, but were gradually excised during that move from personal medicine to hospital and then laboratory medicine. Unlike the lavish attention paid by surgeons like Bell and many others to facial expressions, latter authors tended to use schematic images of bodies which, if they did include faces, were almost always expressionless. When facial expressions did return to medical textbooks um, from the 1970s onwards, they were primarily used to see the pain of speechless humans and non-human animals. They also contained an um, a element of suspicion about the veracity of patients' complaints. Not only did the imploring face, along with rich figurative languages, disappear from medical texts, they were replaced by the language of anatomy, chemistry, neurology. Contorted features, rhetorical flourishes were increasingly sidelined, indeed strongly discouraged. For clinicians, the person's misery was reduced to separate component parts, nervous, visceral, chemical, neurological, and so on, within the physiological body. This is why witnessing pain, whether as outsiders or clinicians, makes and always makes political claims. In this, the person in pain, I think, has a great deal to teach us. Thank you.